Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Dialogue Out Loud series. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. Today, we're excited to have with us Matthew Harris, professor of history at Colorado State Pueblo, to talk about his article in the fall 2022 issue of Dialogue, Joseph Fielding Smith's Evolving Views on Race, the Odyssey of a Mormon Apostle President. In this fascinating piece, Harris traces out a new history of Joseph Fielding Smith's views on race. Smith was an apostle during the tumultuous civil rights era and became president of the church in the early 1970s as racial tensions for the church were reaching their peak. He was the last president of the church to uphold the policy preventing members of the church with African ancestry from full participation in priesthood and temple. He was often considered a hardliner on these teachings, promulgating the idea of a biblical curse of Cain on black Africans and their descendants. Matthew, welcome, and we're so glad to have you here. Well, thanks, Taylor. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So first, can you summarize the traditional view of Joseph Fielding Smith's thoughts on race and talk a little bit about how your research challenges that? Well, the, the traditional view, especially by a certain generation of the church, that he was the he was really the guy that had the, the most um, uh, extreme views on uh, on black people, on the priesthood and temple restriction. He had written more uh, books and articles than any of his contemporaries advancing this idea of this biblical curse that you just mentioned. And so I, I certainly knew about his views before I started, but when I started uh, researching into his private papers, I recognized how the ban had affected him personally, that he wasn't the callous, curmudgeonly man that probably most members see him as, that um, when he would be in council meetings, for example, as an apostle, and they're talking about a person who bore the curse and that they had to be released from their church calling because their African ancestry was discovered, uh, it made him think about the propriety of the ban and how it affected people. And so when I got into his writings, I recognized that he evolved over time in terms of um, how he looked at the ban and how he, the role that he saw for uh, Black people within the church. And that was surprising to me because I just had this view of him as just this doctrinaire person who refused to budge. But um, toward the latter part of his life, in the 1960s, up until the day he died in the early 70s, he uh, he really started to rethink the role uh, of Black people in the church, and he wanted to make the church more inclusive for them. But he, of course, stopped short of lifting the priesthood ban. So you mentioned that you had access to some of the private papers, and and this is, of course, one of the great specialties that you often offer us as as uh, in your historical work. Can you tell us a little bit about what some of these uh, never-before-seen papers were and some of these other sources that you had access to? Yeah, so um, usually when you have restricted collections, like the Joseph Fielding Smith papers in the church archives, you have to um, apply to see them. And years ago when I applied, um, told them what I was doing, and the archivist granted my request and gave me what's called the finding aid. So it's a big, massive, thick document that illustrates what materials are in which boxes. And I didn't have carte blanche to look at everything because that probably would have taken me a year. 
everything in terms of his entire ministry and everything that he, he did. Um, so I applied for the stuff that interested me, which of course would have been the priesthood ban, lineage, um, things that dealt with BYU and civil rights, um, letters that the saints, Latter-day Saints had written uh, Joseph Hilling Smith about having questions about the ban and why do we have this ban? Why do we do it? How do you reconcile the ban with um, the civil rights movement? What does segregation have to do with the priesthood ban? You know, all of that stuff. So they gave me access to probably 90% of the material that I asked to see and including his diaries. And I was just blown away. You, you start to get a human side to all of this when you see their private papers. And I've shared this with a couple of my, my church archivist friends that, that Joseph Fielding Smith, at least in my opinion, is an immensely likable person. When I was reading his diaries, I found that he was funny. He was witty. He, he was a prankster. He played jokes on people. And frankly, I lamented that the other people don't get a chance to see this side of him because what they see is, is very similar to his son-in-law, uh, Elder Bruce McConkie, who was in the Quorum of the Twelve. And both of those men had great senses of humor, but yet they come across with just, you know, these stern figures, these, these Old Testament prophets, you know, warning the generation to repent. And, and they did that, but privately they were, they were a different person. And so I've been advocating for a long time, you know, let's start to make some of this open so that we can present these, these apostles as more than just, you know, one dimensional figures. Well, it's such a fascinating time in church history. And, and you give us the, the insights from, as, as you mentioned, one of the kind of hardliners uh, publicly on, on this issue. We have had in recent years, uh, the David O. McKay papers, of course, which opened up a whole new uh, narrative about the, the history of the priesthood ban uh, there. What were some of the things that maybe surprised you the most, besides maybe the sense of humor and some of the personal details? What were some of the, the details that kind of surprised you the most in the course of this research? Well, in, what surprised me the most is also what surprised me about the, the Spencer Kimball papers that I've seen as well. And that I, I saw how the ban affected them personally, that when Spencer Kimball and Joseph Filling Smith went to church conferences and these light-skinned or bi, we'd say biracial today, they used a terrible term in those days called mulatto. Um, but anyway, these biracial Latter-day Saints would come up to the apostles after the conference and they would say, especially if they were young men, they would say something like, oh, I long to serve a mission, but I know I can't because I bear the curse. And I want to be faithful. I pay my tithing, Brother Kimball, Brother Smith, but I can't serve a mission. I can't marry the temple like my, my fellow quorum members. And so you can't help but walk away from those experiences and realize that you're dealing with human beings. And so Joseph Fielding Smith, like uh, Spencer Kimball, the ban affects them in, in such a profound way. Obviously, with Kimball, he's moved to lift the ban because of this personal experience. Whereas Joseph Fielding doesn't go that far, he thinks that the ban is rooted in Scripture. He's, he's really a hardline. He's a fundamentalist when you read Scripture. He reads it literally, and he thinks that this is really what God wants. But he sat on his fair share of core, in his fair share of core meetings where these biracial uh, Latter-day Saints had... Um, express themselves to be uh, participate in the church. And he 
at first, early on, he would just say, you know, they have the curse, we have to release them. But as he aged and as these stories grew on him, he told some Latter-day Saints, you know, don't admit this, just keep this to yourself. Because if you if you volunteer that you your great, great, great grandfather from Africa is black, then it's going to trigger a release from your calling. Um, you won't be able to marry in the temple. Of course, it'll it'll affect your your brothers who are also priesthood holders. So he recognized how this impacted people. And um, Gene England, a, a liberal professor at BYU for a number of years, he tells founder this really interesting founder of dialogue. Yes, thank <laughs> you. That's right. And I uh, have an oral history interview with Gene England in 1973 talking about dialogue. And how much it just, the brethren feared it. Anyway, um, but Gene England tells this revealing story that he met with Joseph Fielding Smith in the late 60s. And uh, Gene England was a careful reader of Mormon scripture. And he asked the aging apostle, he said, where is it in the scriptures that it says that black people can't hold the priesthood? And England, they, they, so they went through some scriptures after a couple of hours and being the great textual critic that Gene England was, he just said, with all due respect, President Smith, I just don't see that there. I don't see what you're, it doesn't mean what you say it means. I mean, you know, that's pretty impressive for a young man who's probably in his early 30s to tell his aging, you know, scriptorian that you're wrong. <laughs> he, said it, he said it so delicately, though. But anyway, in England's uh, account, he said that President Smith looked back at his chair and he said, you know, I suppose you don't have to believe that black people were cursed and less valiant in order to stay in the good graces of the church. And England walked away from that experience, you know, relieved because he thought that he had to believe in these traditional teachings in order to, to be considered faithful. But that was uh, Joseph Fielding Smith. The other thing that he did too, uh, Taylor, that's really, I think, instructive that I think, I don't know of anyone who knows this, at least the people that I think would have known it didn't know it including my friend Darius Gray and others. But Joseph Fielding Smith was the mastermind behind the Genesis group. And this is, of course, for your listeners who may not know this, this is the, it's a, it's an all-black support group that the church created in 1973. And Joseph Fielding Smith proposed it in 1955, but it was shot down because this is really at the height of the civil rights movement. This was, he proposed it within weeks of Emmett Till's murder, this young man from Mississippi. And then of course, Rosa Parks would get arrested a few months later. And so David O. McKay thought that if we create a Genesis group, they didn't call it that, but if we create a, a separate group for Black Latter-day Saints, then it's going to send the wrong message that we sponsor segregated worship services. And of course, Dr. King, Martin Luther King was was critical of uh, white churches for segregating their pews. And so President McKay and some others thought that this would send the wrong message. And frankly, when Smith had proposed it in 1955, it wasn't because he didn't think that black people should worship with white people. So it wasn't for segregation purposes. It was because he said, quote, we wanna give them a place where they can feel comfortable. In other words, give them their own worship service and we'll be able to reactivate these, these Black Latter-day Saints who have fallen away. So that, that that's really what was driving it. 
But McKay shot it down in 55. And then when he became the church president, he authorized his two counselors to um, resurrect this idea. And they did. And what's interesting is that the three uh, pioneers of the Genesis group, Dryas Gray, a guy named Ruffin Bridgeforth, and then a guy named Gene Orr, uh, they were pushing for the priesthood in the early 70s. They wanted it badly. And I mean, they were pushing is a, that's an understatement. I mean, they were really, really pushing for it hard. And um, Gordon Hinckley showed up one day, Apostle Gordon Hinckley, and he met with these three men and he said, we've been given, we've been authorized to allow you to um, start up your own support group. And they called it Genesis to signify a new beginning. But these three men, they were not pushing for this so-called support group. It was it was completely unknown to them. It was foreign to them. But And they also didn't know that it was Joseph Fielding Smith's brainchild from 15 years earlier. It was a, um, something that uh, Spencer Kimmel had also supported. So anyway, Joseph Fielding Smith was attentive to their needs and why they weren't you know, remaining active in the church, why they were falling away. And so I think that I don't know if anyone knows that story uh, because nobody's ever really talked about Joseph Billing Smith really in this part of his ministry. Thank you. They, those are some fascinating uh, uh, anecdotes here. Um, so as, as you know, and I think you conclude your essay with this, uh, it's been really the last 10 years uh, that the church has been working on um, confronting the history of race and racism in the church since the Gospel Topics essay on, on race and the priesthood. How does your research sort of enrich this broader conversation of kind of confronting LDS racism in the past and about uh, thinking about where to go forward in the future? Mm, great question. So the book that I'm just finishing, uh, that will be published next year, just going and doing final edits now, but it's it's really a, a large trajectory of the rise and fall of the priesthood ban, if you will. The rise meaning that it was doctrine that the that was created in the 20th century. This before 1949, it was just a patchwork of various theories about black people. The general authorities had a multitude of different views about cursed, about are they are they neutral in pre-existence or were they less valiant? I mean, depending on who you talk to, did the band start with Joseph Smith or did it start with Brigham Young? I mean, they they all they had different disagreements. Uh, among themselves about how it started. Joseph Hilling Smith said in 1907, he called the racial theories of the church, uh, what did he say? He said they're theories. The teachings of the church are just theories. And then by 1949, the, the church, uh, they codify these so-called theories into doctrine with the first presidency statement. Anyway, and so what we see throughout from 49 to 2013, uh, we really see the the fall of this this priesthood or this racial doctrine with with uh, this statement, because it's the first time that the church goes on record publicly and they repudiate this anti-Black doctrine that they had been teaching for decades. And prior to 2013, they had um, sent letters out to various people, mostly Black Latter-day Saints, who were complaining about the racism, you know, and at first, some of the apostles would say, they would write in, this is after 1978, they would ask the apostles, they would say, you know, are we still considered cursed and less valiant? And the apostles would write back and say, you know, don't worry about that. Just live your life worthy and you can hold the priesthood. 
They would write back and say, that's not what I asked. I want to know, is this still the doctrine of the church? So clearly it was an issue that none of the, the brethren wanted to deal with. Because essentially, even though some of them didn't believe in the curse and the less valiant stuff, um, they didn't want to throw their colleagues under the bus. They, You know how this works. I mean, they want to protect their own. And, and the, the apostles are like a big family. And some of them are really close and get along. And some of them aren't. And um, so anyway, they wanted they didn't want to go on, get into the business of, of telling somebody that, you know, Elder McConkie's writings were completely wrong on the race issue. So... The, the modus operandi was to look forward, don't look backward. But that wasn't satisfying to a number of Black Latter-day Saints. And so what you, you find is the brethren pushing back with just private utterances of rejecting racism, just racism broadly. You know, we don't teach the church as racist, brothers, so don't worry about it. And again, they write back, you know, I have specific questions. So anyway... In 2012, when Randy Bott, uh, BYU professor, gave this high-profile interview with the Washington Post during Mitt Romney's presidential campaign, the brethren were already on high alert that polygamy and, and uh, blacks and the priesthood, as they call it, uh, would be asked them by the, the press. And so they were really worried about that. And so this professor at BYU gave this pro high-profile interview in which he recounted all of the old racist dogma that the church was trying to move away from. And anyway, it wasn't um, coincidental that just months after that interview, the, they released the Race and the Priesthood essay, in which they implicitly repudiate the two biggest purveyors of anti-Black uh, teachings, which would be Joseph Filling Smith and Bruce McConkie. Mm -hmm. And Joseph Filling Smith taught, as I point out in my essay, he, he believed in racial hierarchies. And of course, he wasn't the only one. But he certainly was the most, the biggest promoter of this idea that God favored races and lineages over other people. And so what I found interesting about the race and the priesthood document in 2013 was it specifically repudiates that idea. It says that all lineages are equal in God's eyes. Nobody is, is um, bears any favor based on their race or their ethnicity. And the 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 leaders of the church had been pushing back on this idea very subtly throughout the 1990s when they would give conference talks about essentially racial equality. But really what they were doing is they were repudiating Bruce McConkie and Mormon doctor and also Joseph Fielding Smith. And so the culmination is that race and priesthood essay that so beautifully states, I think, where the church is today in terms of those old now discarded teachings. But in terms of the race today, uh, the last part of your question is, where are we at today? So the 2013 statement's remarkable, because if somebody says something, you know, about the old racial teachings, um, I've always told Latter-day Saints that, you know, this is a document you can hoist up in your hand and you can say, look, this is not what the church teaches anymore. You know, it's on the church's webpage. So that that's good. But the racism today, Taylor, is, in my opinion, and I think I have good reasons to state this, the church's racism today is not born by the old theology, the old racial theology. It's born by right-wing politics. And so the racism that we see in the church today, although the, the theological stuff is still there on the margins, particularly with an older generation, the younger um, generations of Latter-day Saints are clinging to right-wing uh, extremism with their views towards Black people as it's uh, filtrated through the Republican Party. 
So for example, when you hear someone say, you know, all lives matter, I mean, that's a, that's a tacit rejection of, of Black Lives Matter and what our Black brothers and sisters are fighting for, um, for racial justice. So, and I've heard that too, by the way, from a couple of pretty well-placed church leaders that I've talked to, that it's the right-wing extremism and those racial attitudes that really afflict the church today. Not just with race, but with other things as well, conspiracy, a number of things. Matthew, thank you again for spending your time with us and for sharing your knowledge and insights on these topics. Uh, we hope that our listeners have enjoyed the conversation and have learned something new, not only about Joseph Fielding Smith, but about the history of LDS racism and, and, uh, and the future of these conversations as well. If you'd like to learn more, we encourage you to check out Matthew Harris's article in the fall 2022 issue of Dialogue, Joseph Fielding Smith's Evolving Views on Race, the Odyssey of a Mormon Apostle President, and to explore other resources on this topic at dialoguejournal.com. To our listeners, we thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And don't forget to leave us a review or get in touch with any with us about any questions or comments. We hope you'll turn, tune in. I can't say that word. We hope you'll tune in for uh, future episodes of our podcast. And we look forward to continuing conversations on these topics. Hello, this is Andrew Hall, co-host of the Dialogue Book Report. Each episode, Christina Rossetti and I talked to brilliant minds on the world of Mormon publishing. In recent episodes, we sat down with Christine Hagland and Terrell Givens to discuss the life and legacy of Eugene England. In upcoming episodes, we will be talking to novelist and 19th century women's rhetoric scholar Rosalind Eves about her recent young adult novel, Beyond the Map Stars, and the literature and religion scholar Charles Inoue about his memoir, Zion Earth, Zen Sky, and the Asian American experience within Mormonism. Subscribe to the show wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And check out our past episodes by going to dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue Podcast Network. <laughs>